Well, good morning. My name is Steve Blummer. I'm the interim children's pastor here at Hope Chapel. I've been on staff for about a year now, and but it's good to be with you here and be a part of this series called Faith the Way It's Supposed to Be. And I can assume from the title of this series that there's a faith the way it's not supposed to be. And you and I should be concerned about which faith we're living out because the world, really, your friends, your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers, they're looking at you. And they're looking at me. And they're making judgments about our faith. See, if we're living out faith the way it's not supposed to be, then perhaps we're conveying an inaccurate picture of who God is. If we're living faith the way it's not supposed to be, perhaps we're painting a picture, an inaccurate one, of what Jesus Christ is really all about. And we're certainly giving them a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ when we're living out of faith the way it's supposed to be or faith the way it's not supposed to be. And so for in the series, it's good for us to step back and ask ourselves, are we really living a life that's in a manner that's worthy and a reflection of the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. If we're living out of faith the way it's supposed to be, then people ought to be able to look at our lives and say, those people who are going through real-life situations just like I am, there's something different about them because they have a faith that gives them a hope that doesn't disappoint. Maybe for them they don't have anything like that. And we're doing this series through, this, through the book of Acts. Now, Acts is uh, Acts of the Apostles in the New Testament. It describes the beginning of the church. And as people were encountering this rapidly expanding movement of the good news of Jesus Christ, the world took notice. So much so that they said that these Christians are turning the world upside down. What was it about these believers in the first century that the world took note of them. Well, church didn't look like it did today. The church was growing and it was expanding, and yet there wasn't any fancy church bylaws. There wasn't any well-written doctrinal statements yet for the church. But what was notable was that these believers were fully devoted to Jesus Christ. For them, their faith was real. It meant something for them. Before they had even heard about Jesus, they were living their lives just like everybody else in the world. And yet, they had heard about Jesus and had received Jesus, and suddenly they had a relationship with God like they had never had before. Not only did it change the way they knew about God, their beliefs about God, but it changed the way they related to people. It changed the way they spent their time. It changed the way they spent their money. It changed the way they communicated with people because their lives had been impacted by Jesus Christ. And so for us today, the world ought to look at you and me and know something about Christians. And I think they should know that there's nothing better to receive, there's nothing better to believe in, there's nothing better to hope and put our trust in than in the good news of Jesus Christ. We see early on that in Acts chapter 2 
that these believers were so devoted that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They knew that they needed to learn more. They were devoted to living life with one another on daily fellowship, the importance of getting in small groups and life groups. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which I believe is the Lord's Supper communion. They took this holy sacrament to remind them of why it was that they got together. They didn't get together just to check up on how you doing, how was this week, how was work. They didn't get together just to say, let's study a few passages of the Bible. They got together because they realized that Jesus had made a sacrifice for them and it had made a difference in their lives. And the reason they got together was because of Jesus and they got together for Jesus. They also devoted themselves to prayer. I think with just in Acts chapter 2, we can stop and look at the faith the way it's supposed to be. But we're going to look at Acts chapter 17 this morning, and I think we're going to look at another core value of what it means to live a faith the way it's supposed to be. So you can turn your Bibles, whether you have one in print form or digital form, maybe you have an iPhone, iPad, Android, Windows, whatever we got now these days, and if not, there's a Bible in front of you, and you can turn to page 942 if you want one of those Bibles in front of you. We're just going to jump right in. And this... To give you a little context about Acts 17, there's a guy named Paul. Now, if we understand Paul, here he is on his second missionary journey, but it was only a few chapters ago that this Paul, Saul, was persecuting the church. He went from town to town trying to find Christians so that he could put them in jail. And sometimes he even witnessed their martyrdom. And it was on one of these journeys on the road to Damascus that he encountered Jesus Christ. And it was through this encounter of Jesus Christ that his life was completely changed. So much so that no longer did he stop persecuting the church. He began proclaiming Jesus Christ for the church and with the church. Before, he wanted to hunt down Christians, and now he went from town to town making disciples of Jesus. His life completely changed because of Jesus. So let's just jump right into Acts 17. We'll read the whole chapter and then talk about a few things that we can draw out from this. Then they, Saul, Paul, Silas, and some believers, traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica. I won't stop too many times, but if you look on the map up here in the far left-hand corner, you'll see kind of Thessalonica, Apollonia, and the Macedonia area, Amphipolis. We heard in Acts chapter 16 how God had to help move them over from Asia Minor, move them across the sea into Europe. And so he began his ministry there in the midst of his second missionary journey. They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As always, Paul went to them and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and showing that the Messiah had to suffer And rise from the dead, saying, This is the Messiah Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Then some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, including a great number of God fearing Greeks, as well as a number of leading women. But the Jews became jealous. When they had brought together some scoundrels from the marketplace and formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, attacking Jason's house, who must have been a well known follower of Jesus. They searched for them to bring them out to the public assembly. 
When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has received them as guests. They're all acting contrary to Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The Jews stirred up the crowds and the city officials who heard these things. So taking a security bond from Jason and others, they released them. And we were able to post bail and, and get out. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea. On arrival, they went into a synagogue of the Jews, as Paul normally did. The people here were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, since they welcomed the message with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believed, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. But then the Jews from Thessalonica found out that God's message had been proclaimed by Paul Berea. They came there too, agitating and disturbing the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul away to go to the sea, but Silas and Timothy stayed on there. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed leaving Paul alone in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, as he normally did, and with those who worshiped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Now, the Epicureans didn't believe in life after death. They thought that this life here on earth was all there was, and so you had to make the most of it. And the way you could find happiness was through pleasure, through sensual things or the finer things in life. For them, their goal was peace, tranquility, and absence of pain. And so if your pursuit of pleasure caused you stress and anxiety, then you're going too far. Your, your goal was to find peace, tranquility, no pain. That was the pursuit of happiness. For the Stoic philosophers, they believe in a God, Zeus, who created everything. And Zeus, in fact, orchestrated everything in your life. You really had no say, no free will. And so what you could do in life is to understand nature, understand why Zeus orchestrated things the way they were. And so your pursuit was wisdom and values. And the things that got in the way of wisdom were emotions. So you needed to rid yourself of all emotions to be passionless and to only think wisdom. That's how you found happiness in life. These are who Paul argued with. Some say, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he is telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn more about this new teaching you're speaking of? For what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in the middle of Areopagus and said, men of Athens... 
I see that you are an extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he need anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nation of men to live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live so that they may seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art or imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we will hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their presence. However, some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Arabagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now, I mean, when we look at Acts chapter 17, we can see three main events. Those things that happened in Thessalonica, those things that happened in Berea, and those things that happened in Athens. And there's quite a few things that we can point out through this chapter. We could talk about the believers at Thessalonica, how Paul wrote them two letters, and how when they received the word, the word expanded all the way from Macedonia and Achaia. We can also talk about the Bereans and that they were more open-minded and took, went home and studied the scriptures for themselves on a daily basis. And this, of course, is every pastor's dream of a congregation. Those people who would be open-minded, those who would take lots of notes, I don't see a lot of pins moving. And those people who would go home and study the scriptures for themselves to see if the things that they're saying is really true. These are wonderful pre-Christians, those who are seeking God. We could talk about that. But what I, I noticed throughout the book of Acts is that over and over and over, you see somebody telling somebody about Jesus. Right? You see somebody telling somebody about Jesus. See, for Paul, there was nothing more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. He writes to the Corinthian church later in 1 Corinthians 15 that he gave them the most important thing. And that was the knowledge that Jesus Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and then he rose again from the grave three days later. He walked upon this earth 40 days afterwards, testifying, showing himself to hundreds of people that he had indeed risen from the grave. That was the most important thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that there's so many things in our life that can occupy our time, our energy, our resources, our conversations. 
But what is the things that should occupy them the most? Is it something else or is it Jesus? It ought to be Jesus occupying our time, energy, efforts, resources, conversations. And so I kind of want to look at Acts 17 as providing some techniques into evangelism, ways that we can bridge gaps into having these conversations with people about Jesus and about God. And so if we notice Paul through each of these events, as much as they are different, they have some common thread. And some of those is that Paul created common connecting points in order to talk about God and the gospel of Jesus. Jesus was notorious for this. He had a way of talking to a woman at the well and begin to talk about how he was this living water. As he was feeding the 5,000, he would begin to talk about himself being the bread of life. He used these analogies to take something that they were very familiar with to talk about abstract spiritual matters. And Paul does the, the same thing. And we should find some value in being interested in the people around us so that they would find our conversation interesting. We ought to be interested in others so that they could be interesting in our conversations. And what I mean is that sometimes it's so easy for believers to be disconnected from the world that we have no idea what the world is thinking, what is going on with the world. And I understand that there's a balance between being in the world but not of the world. We know that our citizenship is in heaven and we're merely ambassadors for Christ on this earth. And yet, if we're going to try to to talk to unbelievers about Jesus, then we've got to be hanging around unbelievers. Too easy Christians can get so consumed in good and healthy Christian activity But yet, when was the last time that we walked across our yard to talk to our neighbor? When's the last time that we had to walk down the street to talk to our neighbor? When's the last time that we thought, what is it that the world is so interested in? What are people doing on Sunday? Where are they at? When we're in our life groups, where are people? What are they involved in? What's important to them? Be interested in what they're interested in so that we can build a bridge and provide opportunities to share with them God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Paul, he used different connecting points with different audiences. For the Jews, he talked about their concept of the Messiah. He knew that they had this concern about who the Messiah was. And so he could talk to them using what they were interested in. For the philosophers in Athens, he talked about this unknown God. He walked around the town noticing they're very, very religious. I don't see anything talking about the God that I know and Jesus Christ, and so I'm going to bring that up and talk to them about it. Paul simply walked around the town taking note of what they're interested in and being involved in their lives so he could talk about God and the gospel of Jesus. And we can do the same thing, not in the sense that we need to be trained in Jewish beliefs or we need to be highly educated in the philosophies of this world, but that we just really need to take note of what is it the people around us are excited about. 
what's important to them? And then we can be able to just find those opportunities. We see that Paul also uses his past to talk about God and the Gospels. Seeing these uh, walking into the Jewish synagogue and talking with the Jews and talking with these highly educated philosophers, that played into Paul's strengths. If you remember Paul, Paul was a devout Jew. He was probably trained in the highest form of Jewish education. And in Philippians, he says this about himself, that he was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. He's always been a Jew. Regarding the law of Pharisee, regarding zeal persecuting the church, he was passionate for what he believed in. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. He followed it to the T. He, he wasn't just a casual attendant of the Jewish faith. He lived it day by day. And so his past experience, he could walk into a Jewish conversation and have respect. To talk to them about, hey, you're talking about Messiah? I want to talk to you about Jesus, who is that Messiah. The fulfillment of the one you're waiting for. Because of his past experience. Now, of course, you don't have the same experience as Paul. I don't have the same experience as Paul. You don't have the same experience as I do. I don't have the same past experience as you do. And yet we all have our own unique stories, our own unique testimonies, our own unique experiences in which we can find people in similar situations who need to hear about the gospel of Jesus. For example, I think of a guy who recently would lose his father he died, and now he, he just really doesn't know what to do. He feels lost. And yet there's a guy who has been through that. He understands what it feels like to have your father die. And he's able to come along and provide some faith and hope to this man. Or I think about a girl who finds herself pregnant, and maybe she's been in a really, really rough relationship. Maybe her boyfriend left her, her family has left her. And she feels completely lost. But then there's a woman who knows exactly what she's going through. She can come alongside this girl and provide her with love and comfort, the comfort that she received through Jesus. We often don't like to define ourselves by our past experiences, and Paul didn't want to define himself as being a Jew. His life was changed, but he used those past experiences to be able to speak into someone else's life. Those past experiences, they've given you the ability to have more awareness, to be more sensitive, to have more understanding of people who share similar experiences and who will listen to you when you talk about Jesus. Not only did Paul create common connecting points, not only did he use his past, but in each and every situation, he speaks the message of Jesus. I think sometimes we can get so tied up in, what, what am I going to say when I, when I encounter a Jew? What am I going to say when I encounter a Muslim or a Buddhist? Or how do you explain Jesus to an engineer, right? Those are the toughest kind of all times. How are you supposed to explain Jesus to them? We can get all tied up in these tools, and I'm not trying to say that those tools are invaluable because there's people who know that stuff, and I'm grateful that they know that stuff. But I remember in college that I learned that there was a mathematical formula 
that you can give this, this formula to show a mathematician in the existence of God. I didn't get the formula. I failed the class. I had to take the class again, and I still can't remember the formula. But the point is that that's not what, that's not what Paul's focusing on. What we need to focus on is that in every situation, Paul preached the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus became the method of evangelism. The message of Jesus became the method of evangelism. And I know there's a lot of evangelistic tools out there, such as relational evangelism, building a relationship with someone. There's servant evangelism just serving someone, giving them a sandwich because they're hungry and then talking to them about Jesus. This week I read an article that the new evangelism is all about generosity. If the church would just give money away, people would be more open to the gospel message. Yeah, Paul is saying in each and every situation, we need to open our mouths and actually speak the words of Jesus to them. The message of Jesus is the method of, of evangelizing. And I know many of you are saying, so in the midst of my conversations with my friends, my neighbors, my family, my coworkers, you just want me to drop Jesus right there in the conversation? When you're thinking right now some of those conversations, that's going to turn awkward really fast, right? You're asking me to take a big risk with these relationships. I've been working on this relationship for a while. What if they walk away? It is a big risk. Did Paul know that it was a risk that he might lose some relationships? Yeah. He knew that he might even lose his own life. So many times he was stoned and nearly died. But for Paul, it was so important to communicate the message of Jesus that he was willing to take that kind of risk. And the thing is that there are people who will reject the message of Jesus. Jesus said that the world is going to hate you because it hates him. And there's people that when you begin to talk about Jesus, you begin to talk about the cross, you talk about sin, you talk about hell, they don't want to hear it because it's a bunch of foolishness. But we see in, in all of these situations, even that Paul preached, there was some, there was many there was a few who wanted to hear more about it, who believed, who became disciples of Jesus. I think a few weeks ago, I did this unscientific study upon Facebook, and I asked a few questions. I said, one, did you accept Jesus Christ when you were a kid? Two, did you accept Jesus Christ when you were older in life? And if you did, three, do you wish that you accepted Jesus Christ earlier? And four, do you wish that your kids will one day say that they accepted Jesus Christ when they were kids? And of all the people who responded, many did. Many said that they accepted Jesus Christ when they were a kid. Some said that they accepted Jesus Christ older in life, and many of those said that they wished they had done it earlier. And then many, many people said they really wished that one day their kids would be able to say, yes, I accepted Jesus when they were young. And so we know that just as 
there's these people who don't want to hear it, that it's so foolish for them. We know that there are so many others who are waiting for someone to tell them about the good news of Jesus. There's many of you, some of you, few in here, who have accepted Jesus Christ, and you know the impact that it has made upon your life. And some of you wish that you had heard about Jesus earlier in life. So maybe we do need to take that risk and just drop Jesus in on the conversation. What would Hope Chapel really look like? What would Sterling and Clinton and Lemonster and Harvard and Devons and West Boylston, Boylston, Berlin, what, what would the town that you live in look like if we became more courageous and more bold to tell people about Jesus? I think it would look like the first century church did. In one day, 3,000 people joined the church. And the leaders were running around frantically trying to figure out how in the world are we going to meet the needs of all these people. And I think when we're living out of faith the way it's supposed to be, those are the problems we have. And those are good problems to have. And I don't want to walk away this morning thinking that there's someone here who have perhaps heard about the message of Jesus but have not accepted Jesus. For Paul, it was the most important thing that anybody could hear. The message that Jesus Christ died for your sins. That God had created everything and yet sin had entered into the world and sin had destroyed the relationship between us and God. And that the relationship between man and man, woman and woman, that had been destroyed because of sin. And sin had even destroyed the relationship between ourselves. And yet God promised that one day he would restore those relationships. And because he loved the world so much, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the payment of our sin. Sin that deserves God's holy justice and wrath. And yet God loved us so much to take care of that sin. The sin penalty has already been paid for. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is accept the gift that God has given you. And I know there's people here today that would be so excited for you to make that step and to walk along with you in that step. And for us who are believers of Jesus Christ, we ought to get so excited when we're talking about Jesus that somebody's just got to tell somebody about Jesus. If you'd like to make that decision today, you can just talk to me afterwards. Maybe you're interested, you want to have more conversations. I want to hear more about what this is that you're talking about. You can come talk to me, talk to one of the people on staff. You can write on the connection card and put it in the offering plate in just a minute. You'd like to have some more conversations about what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. You could probably even just talk to the person sitting right next to you. They'd love to talk about Jesus to you. So that's the challenge for us. Faith the way it's supposed to be. The world ought to know about you and me and about our faith that it's about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much 
for what you've given to us. Now, we didn't deserve for you to love us and show us grace, but you did. You took care of our sin. You want to have a relationship with us. God, I pray this morning for those who are followers of Jesus Christ that we would live out of faith the way it's supposed to be and that we would just want to tell other people about Jesus. Give us boldness and courage. We know it's not going to be easy. We have relationships that we know that are risky if we start talking about Jesus. So help us to do that. We give you honor and glory this morning. Help us, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, just get our praise on and sing celebration this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.